This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful that you are spending time with us. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here. And who knew the Murdoch case when we began this thing back in June of 2022? I know. I believe it's hard to think back. Yes. uh, When it was just uh, 10 days, perhaps, after the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch that we began this podcast, not really knowing what we were doing. And now we may have another trial. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, uh, they can get on Facebook and look up Impact of Influence. They can go to Podcast at gmail.com. I'm very slow at responding to email, but I'll try to get back to you when I can because things just got crazy again. Seton and I recorded a podcast and then got in our vehicles and drove down to Columbia. And I, I think before we even get into this possible retrial, a lot of people who listen aren't familiar with the geographical situation of South Carolina. So we live near Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte is about an hour and a half from Columbia. And then from Columbia to Charleston, it's another hour and a half, two hours. And from Columbia to Walterboro, what's that? Two Something I, like I've that. I've never driven it straight from Columbia. I always yeah. take kind of back roads, so but, I'm not totally sure. But Columbia is the the capital of South Carolina, and that's why a lot of the press conferences and and such are there. And that's where Dick Harpootlian, who's a senator, state senator, has his office. That's where all the prosecution, uh, the, the attorney general's office, that is there. So it's all in Columbia, it's in Walterboro, and uh, Moselle, and the the properties we talk about. That's all called the Low Country. Right. And this press conference that was held yesterday was in front of the Court of Appeals, which is in Columbia. Yeah. We've been hearing this buzz for a bit. Let's start with uh, Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin's opening statement. Today, Jim Griffin and I filed a petition based on newly discovered evidence with the South Carolina Court of Appeals to stay Alec Murdaugh's appeal while a hearing is held on a motion for a new trial. Concurrently, we've sent a request the South Carolina U.S. Attorney to open a federal investigation into the violation of Alec Murdoch's civil rights. The allegations in the petition filed today speak for themselves, but we believe they explain a number of peculiarities in the six-week trial. We request that SWED stand down on initiating any investigation of these allegations since they are heavily invested in maintaining Alex's convictions. We suggest they wait for the Court of Appeals to rule and receive direction from the trial court. If the Court of Appeals remands the case for an evidentiary hearing, if, if, the, if the Court of Appeals remands the case for an evidentiary hearing, we would also request that those in the media and the public respect the privacy of those in filing. Jim and I want to thank those on our team who stand behind us and, and have worked tirelessly to ferret out the truth. Alex Murdoch maintains, 
maintained and still maintains his innocence in the murder of Maggie and Paul and believes the truth will ultimately prevail. Jim? The right to a jury trial is a fundamental principle of our justice system. Jurors must be free from outside influences and must decide the case solely on the evidence presented in the courtroom, subject to the rules of evidence, subject to the rules of the court, and most importantly, subject to the crucible of cross-examination that's guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, and that is the right to confront witnesses. When, when a jurors are receive private communications outside the confines of a public courtroom, the Sixth Amendment is violated and numerous other constitutional rights are violated. And that's not Jim Griffin on the law, that is the law of the land. And I want to quote from a decision from the South Carolina Court of Appeals, which is behind me, and states this, where there is a private communication of a court official to members of the jury, an occurrence which cannot be tolerated if the sanctity of the jury system is to be maintained. A new trial must be granted unless it clearly appears that the subject matter of the communication was harmless and could not have affected the verdict. What we had filed today, it, it, supported by sworn testimony of jurors, is that the clerk of court had improper private communications with the jurors and the subject matter, the subject matter of those communications was the credibility of the defense that the Murdoch legal defense team put up and it was the believability of the defendant's own testimony. Now, there's been a lot of said, talked about whether Alex should have taken the stand. I can assure you, I can assure you, when we considered what factors and what we should and should not do and considered whether he should take the stand, we never considered the likelihood, as reported to us by the jurors, that the clerk of court would go in to the sanctity of the jury room before he testified and tell the jurors, don't be fooled by his testimony. So I've seen a lot of uproar on social media because there's lots and lots of people who think Alec Murdoch is completely guilty of this. And I think there's a misunderstanding. This is not about whether he's guilty or innocent. It's about whether he got a fair trial. And there's also a couple of things in there that I thought are worth uh, pointing out. One is the federal investigation part of it. Yes. That he mentioned in there, which uh, they are saying was a violation of Alec Murdoch's civil rights. And they sent note to the State Department. And we'll get more into that as to why. But that's something important in the, in the, in the opening statement there. Plus the wanting SLED to stand down. Yeah. That's big. I think so, too. I mean, they're, they're saying that SLED was heavily involved, invested in this investigation. So it's not appropriate for them to be handling it. And I think later on in the press conference, they, they said FBI or possibly another, uh, like a sheriff's department who was not locally involved. Yeah, all, all that uh, Harpoon Lee said he wanted was not SLED. Uh, and SLED has been investigating. We, we know that for a fact. Uh, because of many sources telling us that they have been down there talking to people, jurors, etc. When I say down there, it's like Columbia to the low country. Well, and this could all just be Harpootland, you know, really just trying to get people riled up. But he did mention that the sled officer of the year was the, the person. David Owens. David Owens, who gave untruthful testimony to the grand jury. About the blood spatter on the shirt, right? Yes. Well, and the untruthful, to, to be fair, just to preface yes. that, we don't know for sure that he intentionally gave untruthful 
testimony. We right. know that that blood spatter, impact spatter, whatever it is, did not prove it to to be true. He he presented it in front of the grand jury, but they didn't use it in the trial because it was proven to not be admissible. Right, but he could have believed that uh, at the time that he yeah. testified to the grand jury that it was, in fact, blood spatter. Right. Also, there's two affidavits, correct? Yes, I believe two are from jurors and one is from a paralegal who spoke with a juror. Okay, let's get that straight out of the gate here. Uh, now, I asked a question, one, I think a second question of the press conference as to what timeline they wanted and uh, when would they expect a response. A person's like, oh, you got to ask them, pointing to the Court of Appeals. But then he said 10 days. But what are they hoping for? What's going to happen? Well, the defense team is seeking an evidentiary hearing where they speak to these, they interview these jurors, they're called in. Now, this will not be in front of the public. We will get transcripts, but we have to protect the identities of the jurors. This would be a hearing where they question these jury members about what happened during the trial. The state should file a response in 10 days, but they could also ask for an extension. That's possible. Okay. I want to pull up another clip here from the presser. And one one, one thing we want everyone to understand that the clerk of court is an elected official by the people, not appointed by the judge, not appointed by the judiciary. It's a public official who's elected and is an independent state actor. And so what we're complaining about in the motion that we filed today is the conduct of an elected official, not conduct by Judge Newman or anybody in the unified court system. And, And I think it's important also to understand that she is a state actor, and that's why we forwarded today a letter to the U.S. attorney asking them to open an investigation into the violation of Alec Murdoch's civil rights by a state actor under under color of state law. The clerk of court for Colleton County is Becky Hill, and we actually interviewed her on our episode 130 if you want to go back and listen to it. Um, I think some of the things that they are alleging, now these are just allegations at this point. They have not been proven in a court of law, but they're saying that the clerk should be responsible for things like food and lodging, transport, mm-hmm. transportation, those sort of things, and that those really should just be their, their interactions. But I should I also want to mention that the clerk of court is the easiest person to blame because they have the most contact with the jury. They're supposed to come to her if they need anything. So she's she's a target right there. It remains to be seen what specifically she said. Now, uh, we're going to revisit some of Becky Hill's interview we had with her. She was sweet as could be to us. That doesn't mean that she didn't do what's alleged. I'm just telling you, she's perfectly great to us. No, she's a lovely person. So there's a few things, uh, the allegations and tampering, asking jurors not to believe Murdoch's testimony or any evidence presented by his defense, pressure them to reaching a a quick guilty verdict. Yeah, they mentioned that um, there were six smokers on this jury (laughs) and that during the trial, they were allowed to go out and have smoke breaks, but they were told during deliberations they would not be allowed to. They say, I think Dick at one point, Harpootlian says that, you know, in and of itself, that's not a big thing, but with all the other things, because they used to be, they're used to getting their smoke breaks. And if you're pressuring them into coming to a quick verdict, that's not okay. Well, and another thing that uh, I think Jim Griffin mentions in this interview is uh, she says when Alec Murdoch is testifying, she said things like, don't let the 
let this distract or mislead you mm-hmm. and that possibly if they had been privy to this information they would not have put Alec Murdoch on the stand yeah she had she's accused of having frequent Becky Hill is accused of having frequent private conversations with the jury for person including a private chat with her during the jury's field trip to Moselle well I want to I, I do want to play devil's advocate with this a little bit because if this is the four person this this person could also have been talking to her about things like logistical things like lunch or breaks or that sort of thing so we don't know what these conversations entail well we know what the four person alleges right no i don't think this i don't think this is um oh, that's not the four person no. the egg lady no egg lady was not the four person egg lady's the one who got booted but we should also talk about the four person so judge newman appointed the four person but the jury i guess believed that they were going to elect the four person so Judge Newman didn't appoint the four person the same person as what the the I forgot their about fellow, that. fellow jury members had selected. Yeah, yeah I for, totally forgot about that happening. And we referred to the egg person because it's the woman who's very involved in this because she got booted from the jury and she said she when they told her to leave, she had to leave and get her belongings. She had eggs in the room where the jury hung out. And so we call her the egg woman. Well, the former four person the one who was not selected by judge newman who thought she was the four person in this filing says that she was criticized for offering another jury a tissue during some testimony i guess that was upsetting hmm i'm going to pause for a second and let you hear from jim griffin you know the information we got i can tell you was independent of each juror the first juror we talked to we got information about this hill saying don't be fooled and, and then the second juror, independent of the first juror, says the same thing. And the third juror, independent of the other two, say the same thing. And so we're very confident that the information is accurate. I think what's interesting to me, again, having done this for so long, is that we, once we had that initial contact with that first juror, uh, we began going around. We had a list and knocking on, literally on Sundays, knocking on jurors' doors, asking them to speak with us. Some of them wouldn't come out. Some of us told us never to come back, um, but but some did, and some talked to us. Okay, so previously in this press conference, Dick Harputlian says that, I guess they were riding around Colleton County, dirt roads, knocking yes. on doors. I He's like, we're when, city boys. And that's when they got the Heisman. Yes, he said, uh, we're, we're, we're city boys, we were on these dirt roads, I didn't even know these places existed. Right, which is weird. You're a state senator, Dick. Yeah. You might want to get on that. <laughs> Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop also be used as an app on your phone or tablet and rosetta stone teaches through immersion it's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals you read stories you participate in dialogues so you are ready to go it's the most trusted time-tested app out there they've been the expert in language learning for 30 years buy rosetta stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership 
for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. But and and trying to because they don't have subpoena power or anything like that. Nobody has to talk to these guys. They don't have to. But what to me was the most interesting thing about that clip was a lot of people started talking after Becky Hill's book came out. And I don't know exactly what it was about I'm, I'm, that book that pushed their buttons. Was it that she was going to attempt to make money? Yeah, I don't really know exactly why they were angry. Um, in this motion that they filed, they say that you know her motive was to get this book deal and fame and fortune, I, I guess. But, the, but which I doubt at least there's a lot of money rolling in on that book highly doubtful it's self-published and right and and last night on uh court tv the co-author said that they self-published and they had to put up thirty thousand dollars of their own money and but however i guess it doesn't really the point is not whether she made money or not to the jurors it just the they think she did maybe that's what it is right and as far as the money making that has nothing to do whether or not she spoke to the jurors inappropriately and whether there was a, an issue because the, the money in the book doesn't really come into play. It's what she said. What did she say to the jurors and will they be able to uh, prove it? One of the things uh, that's alleged in the affidavits uh, is that she had asked jurors about their opinions about Murdoch's guilt or innocence, which she's not supposed to do. They allege she invented a story about a Facebook post on the, quote, Walterboro word of mouth group to remove a juror who might not vote guilty. And and, and that wasn't why that juror was removed. I guess she, she says that she sees this post and she tells Judge Newman about it. Um, the post was removed. It didn't appear as if the post was even made by the husband. Well, that, and, and they, when Arpulian and Griffin were talking they said they pulled the ex-husband you know the ex-husband voluntarily came in to speak to them and they went through all his facebook history and there was no such post yeah they voluntarily gave this ex-husband voluntarily gave all of his facebook information to the defense but you're saying that the facebook post was not the reason she was removed no the facebook post was not why she was removed it was another situation which in this affidavit 
was I think it was the egg lady, the person who was removed. She says that she she owned some property and there was a refrigerator. It's being a rental de- property. Yeah, rental property. And there's a refrigerator being delivered. She it- delivered the refrigerator. There was two people there. The one woman works at a Domino's, I think. I think both worked at Domino's. Both of them. Okay. So they go to work, and I'm paraphrasing the story. One of them goes to work, tells another person at Domino's that Egg Lady delivered a refrigerator and said that she believes Alec is innocent or, or something along those lines, something that she shouldn't be saying. So she tells the person, her coworker at Domino's, the person at Domino's calls Sled or somehow Sled gets word. And they show up at their house at 10 p.m. at night. Yes. They're asleep and wake them up and interview them. This couple that's renting the property from the juror gets woken up by Sled. At 10 o'clock at night. Which is odd to me. Yeah. you could have waited, right? And then they tell them to, that they have to come to the court to sign an affidavit the next day. And they keep them for, what was it, nine, uh, nine hours? Seven, I think. They held her. They arrived at the courthouse at 9 a.m. the next day and were held for nine hours until 6 p.m. when sled officers or a prosecutor finally presented typed affidavits to them saying they were their statements from the previous night that had been recorded by dash cam. So they signed them without reading them. Yeah, they signed them without reading them. And they, in this affidavit, the egg lady says that those two, the renters, told her that they never said that stuff. That they signed it because they were just tired and kind of delirious or whatever. That should be easy enough if it's on a dash cam to prove or disprove. Right? Yeah, I would think so. So, but it also, the uh, the affidavit, again, that's her opinion. It's all these third person things. Like even just the egg lady tells the Domino's person, the Domino's person tells the coworker, the coworker, blah, 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 blah. so they need to investigate a lot more. It does seem like an evidentiary hearing could maybe answer some of these questions. Yes, because right now it's pretty still up in the air. If she, at least on that particular issue. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Becky Hill's book. And again, you can go back and listen to our episode number, as I'm trying to get my thoughts all together. 130. 130, yep. And we're going to take some excerpts out and, and, and play them for you. So but if you want to hear the whole episode, it's 130. So here's one of the, a, se- a section out of one of the affidavits about the book. Yeah, this uh, was one that they put in, not the affidavit, in the motion. They say, while the jurors viewed the Moselle property, we could all hear and see Alex's story was impossible. Some of us, either from the courthouse, law enforcement, or a jury at Moselle, had an epiphany and shared our thoughts with our eyes. At that moment, many of us standing there knew. I think we all knew that Alex was guilty yeah she makes no bones about it that becky hill the clerk of courts believes alec was guilty but i think also maybe part of the problem is they're saying this communication even if it was just her eyes i I don't know i mean the way it's worded is very it needs clarification i mean we said right from the beginning right you and i both and many people like well this is odd a clerk of court writing a book. I've not heard of such things. I may it happened and why we wouldn't know, I guess. And and Becky Hill explained that she went to what she believes were all the proper people. Right. And I think hearing from her is obviously going to be really interesting. But yeah, when we when we interviewed her, she did go through proper channels. So let's go back and listen to a little bit of what Becky Hill said when she came on with us on episode one thirty. 
Well, you just mentioned that you're writing a book, which is called Behind the Doors of Justice. When did you right. decide to write a book and when will it be out? I, I think I first got the idea to write the book when we were pre- preparing for the trial about four months before January of 2023, when we heard that the judge had ordered the trial to be uh, fast-tracked and that it would be held in January. So we did a lot of preparation here in Colleton. We met with law enforcement. We met with city officials, county officials. Everybody came together so well. So with the book, um, I kept copious notes during the trial. And the more that the trial went on, I could just tell that there was such a story to be told behind the doors of what was going on. There were so many things like the egg lady and what about those eggs, you know, (laughs) and more into the story of what was going on there. So many things with the judge, with the people that came in the crowd, the crowds meeting at 3.30 in the morning sometimes, um, and different things that went on with the media. The idea came, and when the trial ended, I took two weeks off and to wrap my head around life and getting back to a normal kind of pace. And on the third week, I said, I really need to put this Mm -hmm. into writing, and that's when it happened. I connected with Neil Gordon, who lives in Augusta with his wife, Melissa, who's a photographer, and she had been to Colleton, and I met her on like the second to the last day of the trial. She and I immediately bonded. We connected about that third week in March, and the the idea for the book became born. And I wrote furiously from the end of March until June, probably June the 1st. Now, when you decided to write this book and you started to tell people that you're writing this book, how did the, the fellow court employees or attorneys or judges or what was the feedback from the community within that courthouse about you writing this book? Everybody wanted to know if they were going to be in it. (laughs) Um, But it was overwhelming. I'd say it was overwhelming, encouraging. And I've had a few friends, a few judges, a few uh, attorneys who were just just cautious about being an elected official and writing a book like this while an appeal is still in the process um, of being in the courts. Right. And so I've had to get uh, authority from my uh, South Carolina Supreme Court Justice, Donald Beatty, which he has given. I've gone before the Ethics Committee and I have um, something in writing from them that has told me that they allow this under certain conditions in which I have to follow. And so I've reached out to other people that are elected officials and talked to them about the way they handled it as well. So I am, I'm trying to be very, very um, cautious and doing the right thing about putting things in my book that are allowed and what's not allowed. Let's get to Alec Murdoch. So how often did you interact with him? Well, on a daily basis, every time he would come into the courtroom every morning, he still addressed me as, good morning, Miss Becky. How are you? Now, you've known him? Did you know him before this? I did. I did. I um, worked with him professionally as a court reporter and I worked with him, you know, when he's an attorney coming into Colleton, um, even being in other places around the state, you know, we would get pleadings and stuff from the law firm. So I've known him for quite a while. Are you allowed to talk about his demeanor? What was his demeanor during the trial and did it change as he got closer to the end? Uh, Explain the vibe you got from Alec. 
in the beginning, I think he was very jovial. He was very um, almost like he was an attorney there representing representing another defendant. And then it, it began to get very. It began to get very. How would you say it? Very uh, tense. Um, mm. The air got a little little tighter um, when the prosecution brought out the fact that the Snapchat video um, gave a different story than what he was telling. Yeah. And uh, as the trial went on, things became more tense and uh, not a whole lot of talking and especially the ending days. It was, it was very tough. Just, just the courtroom was filled with a lot of uh, emotion. Mm. You were the person who read the guilty verdict and I was in the yes. courtroom at this. It was really surreal. How was that for you? Well, I um, it didn't hit me until I knew the jury had a verdict. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I now have to read a verdict. I don't know what it is, but I hope it's the right thing. And you could none of us expected it to be that, come back that quick. Did you? I mean, you didn't expect it, I would imagine. We had heard talk that some people thought it was going to take all weekend. Yeah. Some people thought it would take into the next week. Some people thought it might even go two weeks. Um, yeah. I have to say that I had some interaction with my jury, and we didn't talk about the case, but I knew from questions that they had. And when we did the site visit to Moselle that next to the last day, we didn't have to say a word because everyone's eyes, everyone's quietness told the whole story. And it showed being there on that property. It's almost as if Maggie and Paul were speaking from the grave that this is what happened. We could feel it. It, it was just it was just a feeling in the air, in the wind. That was a major game changer? I think that was. That was the top three in the game changing of the trial, yes. This trial lasted so much longer than any of us expected it to last. How did the jurors hold up? Were they getting fatigued at coming in for six weeks? I know they had to be tired. I do know that, but they were persistent. They were they were very bound and obedient to their job. They took every one of those jurors took their job as a juror so seriously. They they knew that it was serious. And I believe, I mean, I can't tell you what they did when they went home, but I know many of them said that they took the judge's order to be exactly that. Because he told them when they went home, they were not to watch any TV, not to talk to anyone about what had happened, not to listen to the radio, not to read the newspaper. And most of every one of them said they didn't do that. I believe them. Well, I'm going to go back for a second. You said top three. So you got, there's Moselle Uh says one. What are the other two that you put on the the list? Well, we might just say four. Um, So the Snapchat video came right out of the gate. Right. And... I think the second one was the information about the vehicles and the cell phones. Okay. All of that information that you just can't argue with. That tells a tale that is specific to a time and where a person is. And then the the third one, I would say, would have been the visit to Moselle. But I have to say also, the jury did not respond well to the defendant getting on the stand and testifying. They were really, really turned off from that. You see a lot of jury trials. Can you always read a jury pretty well as to how they're, not necessarily the verdict, but how they react to testimony and things? Most of the time you can. A lot of people can hide it. Most can't. How often are you surprised by a jury verdict? 
there's always that element of surprise. But I kind of felt in that what they call that woman's gut, I kind of knew what they were thinking. And I had hoped and prayed that justice would be done. So that's a lot to digest in that episode. <laughs> There's a lot coming down the road. Just in time for Seton to go on vacation. Yes. <laughs> you desperately need. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All right, friends. Uh, we appreciate it. We always are so grateful that you spent time with us. A lot of choices there. Uh, reach out to us on Impact of Influence. Impact of Influence. Impact of Influence on Facebook or Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Have you ever wondered about things that go bump in the night? Or objects in the sky? Or other things you just couldn't explain? Then join me, Jim Howard, on my podcast, The Mauer Report. Each week, you'll find engaging conversations with guests who are authors, historians, and scholars who lend their expertise as we discuss current events and venture into the fringe and paranormal. The Mauer Report hits controversies head-on, yet remains conversational, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform.